Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, when he pours, he reigns. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good. That's obviously some sort of pun on an animal in that tagline. Is it some animal becoming king? Is it Garfield a tale of two kitties? Well, uh, see, this is where seeing the tagline written down would have helped you considerably because it was when he paused, as in P-O-U-R-S. Okay. He reigns. It is the greatest tagline of all time. It's the tagline from Cocktail. Oh, that that is a truly great tagline. <laughs> that is, that is, I would say, I've been saving that one all year, uh, is the biggest disparity between how good the tagline is and how good the film is. Mm. Because I... I actually think that they came up with that before they wrote the script. It would seem that way. It's a little too clever to have been come up by marketing people. Mm, yeah. And it was, it's, you know, I kind of, it's an old joke, isn't it? That like, you know, during the 80s, Tom Cruise essentially just made the same film over and over again. Mm. Uh, he would be a, a fighter pilot. And not just any fighter pilot, a good fighter pilot who has a crisis of confidence, but all it takes is the love of a good woman to turn him round. Or like in Cocktail, where he plays a cocktail barman, a good cocktail <laughs> barman, <laughs> who has a crisis of confidence, and all it takes is the love of a good woman to turn him round. Like in Days of Thunder, where he plays a driver, <laughs> a good driver. Or in Far and Away, where he plays an Irishman, a good Irish. No, that's actually incorrect, because he's really badly Irish in that, isn't he? Yeah, or Born on the 4th of July, where he's a Vietnam veteran. Yeah. A good Vietnam veteran. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's the best Vietnam veteran. Um, but yeah, The only anyway. thing I know about Cocktail, because I, I don't think I've actually seen it, right. the only thing I associate with it is the bit in American Psycho, the book, where Patrick Bateman gets in an, a lift with Tom Cruise and tells him he really liked him in that movie Bartender. <laughs> Uh, which is like one of the few things from that book that really stuck with me. That and describing a dog's broken leg as being at a satisfactory angle. So uh, don't read American Psycho, people. It's not as good as the movie. <laughs> I have seen Cocktail a couple of times, and I think people remember it as kind of like a light, frothy 80s movie, mm -hmm. whereas like, it's like got a brutal murder in and uh, quite, a, quite a kind of strong sex scene. Would that um, make it the uh, the like the Saturday Night Fever of the eighties? Yeah, it's the one that everyone remembers as being a lot of fun. Um, but then, yeah, so yeah, Saturday Night Fever. I remember when I used to work at a theatre and we rented it out for some guy's thirtieth birthday, and mm. they were showing Saturday Night Fever as their the film they wanted to show, and you know everyone have a few drinks and have a few laughs, and everyone came out of that was like, oh fuck, that was that was grimmer <laughs> than I remember. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, it's quite heavy. Anyway, what's been going on in the news this week? There's, it's, it's going to be quite light on news this week, but one thing I definitely wanted to mention was 2016 uh, continuing its bastard rampage. Ron Glass passed away today. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Castro. No. <laughs> well, I mean, Castro's in some good films. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's Bananas. 
Soy uh, Cuba. I think he's in Soy Cuba. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely in that film that Oliver Stone made about him. Yes. Um, but yeah, Ron Glass passed away, which is a real shame. And the reason that I bring this up is because if I would have heard that news anyway, I'd have been like, oh, that was pretty sad. I like Ron Glass. And more specifically, I like, you know, the character of Shepard uh, mm. from, from Firefly. But it just so happens that I'm watching Firefly right now because my wife has never seen it. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching it with her. And I told her today, oh, the man who plays Shepard has died. And she doesn't know how Serenity ends. <laughs> <laughs> and like that to me is like doubly sad. Mm. Yeah, I've been a fan of his since the 90s because there was a sitcom in the 90s called Teen Angel, which used to air on the Disney Channel in the UK, which was created by Al Jean and Mike Reese, who were like the two guys who shepherded The Simpsons for his best years. Uh, and it was a very odd high concept sitcom about a teenage boy who dies after eating a expired hamburger (laughs) and then comes back to earth as an angel to help his best friend and ron glass played uh god's cousin todd no god's god's cousin rod uh and he was basically just a giant floating head who would offer advice and be really snippy and sarcastic with the angel and he was just a really even though it was just his head for pretty much the entire show, he was such a uh, a charming presence that I always like looked out for him whenever he was in things. And that was like the first time I watched. That was literally the thing that got me into watching Firefly. Was like, hey, it's God's cousin Rod, uh, and that's like a show that went nowhere. Hardly anyone watched, but he left a really kind of big impression on me. And anything I've seen him in since. Uh, he's always been just kind of a wonderful, charismatic and charming presence. Mm, it's interesting reading, because, I mean, obviously, I kind of have seen his face before, but, you mm. know, not really something I could pin him down. But you look at his kind of filmography and television kind of career, and he was in, you know, quite a lot of shows that, I mean, for American audiences, were definitely part of the television fabric history, I guess. You know, like things like Sanford and Sons and, and you know, Barney Miller, mm. and, you know, things that you know, we know of that were, we know they're important, even maybe if we haven't seen them. And he was kind of present in a lot of those things. Yeah, he's one of those character actors who, when you kind of look at the entirety of their career, there's this Zelig-like quality to them. Mm. It's just like they just constantly show up in all this great work. uh, And you don't really, you know, it's the case, I think, with many artists, is you don't really appreciate the impact they had until, you know, that they pass away and you're faced with the, enormity of that and and their oeuvre Mm, yeah absolutely last bit of news this week and it's not really a bit of news but it's just something i wanted to talk to you about martin scorsese Mm -hmm. he has got a new film out well it's coming out at the end of this year uh it's called silence um it's uh probably going to be quite good but with this week we had a trailer come out for it and also a poster poster happens to be one of the worst posters i've seen uh in a long time (laughs) it's pretty shit have you seen it I haven't. I'll just look it up now and uh, yeah, it's, just it's, to get a sense. There's this thing about, I don't know, since X-Men, I think might have been the first one with McAvoy and Fassbender where you'd have the outline of a character and then like a silhouette and then another, some detail inside the silhouette. And yeah, it's it's pretty bad anyway. But um, obviously they're starting to do the kind of the press rounds for, for uh, silence and starting to get the, the hype going. And this week, 
there was an interview with Michael Chabon, who's a favourite of ours, a novelist, a sometimes screenwriter, um, who revealed that he had been working on the long gestating Scorsese biopic of Frank Sinatra. And that got me excited. I was thinking, oh, Michael Chabon is going to write a film about Frank Sinatra that Martin Scorsese is going to direct. And I know that Martin Scorsese has been doing this film for ages, but actually in the interview that Chabon gave, he says, oh, it's, it's dead. It's not going to happen. Mm. And this doesn't seem like news. But what it made me think about is how, like, you know, these kind of passion projects that, like, gestate forever. Like, how long do they have to be in someone's kind of mind before it's a stale idea? Because mm. the idea of seeing a Sinatra film written by Michael Chabon directed by Martin Scorsese seems amazing. But what would put me off from that is the fact that he'd been trying to make it for 20 odd years and I'm sure someone could have found the money. Mm, yeah. Like what, what is it? Like, can you think of any examples of like long gestating passion projects that either never came to fruition or came to fruition and didn't turn out to be all that? I mean, I know that Scorsese himself, like the aviator was, was, was long in the offing, wasn't it? Mm, and gangs of New York was one that he, Oh, that was rubbish. Yeah. That was about, maybe 20 25 years he was working on that because the original version i think we've talked about this before was like the original version he wanted to cast cast the clash in it oh yeah yeah yeah. Uh, i think as we said as i think i said at the time that probably would have been bad but it would have been interesting it would have been bad in an interesting way whereas the the gangs of new york past the kind of the big fight at the beginning there's not a huge amount to recommend it Mm. Um, other than kind of some good uh brendan gleason scene chewing Mm. um uh, I mean, in terms of passion projects, there's one that's literally just out this week that's completely failed, was Warren Beatty's Rules Don't Apply. Right, okay. Because he's been well, he's been working on that specific film for about four or five years at this point. I think they, they shot it in like 2012 and he's just been in an editing bay working on it kind of on uh, on the side for that time in between just kind of swanning around LA, I imagine. I'm not really sure what he does with his days. But yeah, he, he uh, made the film Rules Don't Apply, which was this big passion project he's been working on since the 70s, where he wanted to make a movie about Howard Haw- Hughes, the, diff- the other Howard, Howard Hughes. <laughs> mm. uh, and uh, that's one that has just come out and it's got in kind of mixed reviews. Some people have really responded to it, but for the most part, it's been met pretty indifferently and it's been a kind of a big failure on its opening weekend it's probably going to disappear very quickly from theaters but like it's it's interesting just because even though it's a passion project that he's been working on since the 70s it's one that must have changed shape a lot in that time because when he started trying to make it in the 70s a howard hughes was probably still alive but you know he he wouldn't have been playing hughes then Mm -hmm. you know he would probably been the young uh, the younger figure in that movie if he actually got it made and he maybe he would have had a different view of Hughes in his younger days now he seems to be a little more um gentle towards him based on the reviews you know because it's kind of a, a farce and a comedy uh so it's one of those things where you think no matter how good this version of it is that we actually got uh and there's no indication that it's like a, a lost masterpiece or anything but um it will always seem less interesting than whatever the seventies version would have been because BT was a, was a very different actor and filmmaker back then to what he is now. Mm. Yeah. And it's very, 
you can probably apply that same argument to the gangs of New York Scorsese thing. A, a mm. gangs of New York made in the seventies, where you know Scorsese was coked off his tits, making kind of um, really kind of edgy, kind of pushing the envelope type stuff to Scorsese in two thousand, cozying up with Miramax and having you two write the song that plays over the end credits to try and yeah. rake in a bit of auxiliary cash is uh, ancillary cash, sorry, not auxiliary. I don't want to mess, mix those two up. Yeah, uh, is that's quite a different proposition. Mm, and also, if he had made it in the 70s, it would have been... It'd been interesting if that had been like his big grand folly instead of New York, New York. Because mm. the one that he made in the 2000s was kind of a folly as well, but it was perhaps most notable because it was the first time that he really heavily relied on CGI to kind of help create the world. A lot of it was shot, uh, like at Cinecita, I think is the name of that studio in Italy, where so it was lots of big grand sets, but they also augmented it because they had no other, that, that they were able to, whereas if he'd made it in the 70s, it would have been a very different production process in general. Uh, and, you know, maybe that would have killed off New Hollywood instead of Heaven's Gate. Mm. Um, kind of other passion projects you could think of. Um, famously, Kubrick's Napoleon, I guess. Yeah. Is that one that's the, that is at the gold standard of, 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 you know, never seen unmade films? Uh, it's got to be pretty high up there. He also did that one, The Aryan Papers, which was going to be his Holocaust movie that he was working on in the early 90s, mm-hmm. uh, and which apparently just drove him into kind of a horrible depression Mm. because obviously he does all of this research for his films and if you spend years and years just reading about the 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 holocaust you're just staring the kind of the worst excesses of humanity in the face every day is probably going to take its toll Uh, and then you know spielberg made schindler's list and he said that he didn't feel like he had anything to uh, to add by making his own uh, holocaust movie um or um uh, Coppola has a few like he had that big um, science fiction movie that he was going to make which was like about a, a futuristic New York that had um, is it Megal- Megalopolis is Megalopolis yeah that was it yeah. great title great title great titles because it's like Metropolis but bigger mm. I get it <laughs> yeah it's the evolution of Metropolis mm. it's like you level it up to level 30 and then it becomes Megalopolis. Um, I've been playing a lot of Pokemon <laughs> this last week uh, over the Thanksgiving, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday. But yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of them like that where the I guess the the logline for it or just the, the tantalizing fact that it didn't happen uh, is kind of the most exciting thing. Although the interesting thing about Napoleon is that Kubrick's Napoleon is sort of getting made now because. HBO bought the rights to his screenplay and they're getting Carrie Fukunaga to shoot it as a TV series. Oh, okay. Or, or at least they're they're talking about it. Whether or not it ends up happening remains to be seen, but that's a kind of interesting because assumingly if they have all of his material, they may even have like storyboards and stuff. And it'd be interesting to see if they tried to kind of mimic what he would have done, but obviously in a different format than a three hour, four hour movie. Mm. Will Matthew McConaughey play Napoleon? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a lot of forced perspective. Yeah, <laughs> I think it would be really funny um, if he did, but played him as Wooderson from Days of Confused. <laughs> so uh, just have him kind of strolling out of like a Napoleonic tent on a battlefield, 
and was just like, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> That's the thing I love about Russia. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get, get older, older. <laughs> yeah, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> anyway, Ed, what the fuck are we talking about this week? This week, we are talking about loving imperfect art. Mm, and we are talking about this um, purely because um, uh, kind of a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of uh, how this podcast is put together after last week's episode uh, wrapped after we finished recording it for the second time because we fucked up the recording the first time. So <laughs> it was a, a take two type affair last week. Um, we were like, yeah, what, what the fuck can we talk about next week? And I said something about the fact that I'd been re-watching Arrested Development and then mm. we got into a whole discussion, didn't we, about how um, maybe looking at it kind of with a step backwards, that show is perhaps slightly less good than it appears on the surface. Yeah, because um, I'm not a huge fan of the third season, uh, I think the fourth season's fine, but I also haven't rewatched it, so I don't know if it's kind of holds up to my initial thinking it was fine. Um, you said that you found parts of the first season a little soppy or a little mm-hmm. smaltzy uh, yeah. in a way, because because a lot of that show is kind of making fun of smaltz, but in the first the first season they hadn't quite figured out that that's what they were doing. Mm. But some of it's kind of earnest in a way that doesn't work. But season two is pretty much flawless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that for me is is the, the season of the show that pushes it into the pantheon of really great sitcoms but yeah like you're saying if you take the kind of the overall view of it you're saying okay there's like 18 perfect episodes in the second season season one's about half great uh and so like you when you say it's one of the greatest sitcoms of all time you're also saying that a good kind of 30 to 40 percent of it isn't isn't really up to snuff mm. And that kind of got us thinking about other things which we love, but yet if you look at them perhaps slightly more objectively, they are more bad than good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I kind of just to kind of pick up on Arrested Development, we did a whole episode on season four, I think, didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we record it after we'd both watched it twice in a week? Yeah, we we binge watched it and then binge watched it again. <laughs> again, yeah. And you haven't watched it since then, right? No. No, I watched it. I kind of we've had this conversation before, but again, we'll let the listeners in on it. That both myself and Ed have a habit that if we're working or doing something, they're like it's quite comforting to have something on in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always, I never want it to be something that I haven't seen because I'm not giving it my full attention, but something that I've seen many times or that I like, um, and that I'm comfortable just having in the background for me. Arrested Development, um, things like uh, Community. Uh, Archer, things that I've watched quite a bit that I'm just happy to have on. Kirby Enthusiasm is something else um, quite often have on in the background. Um, so you kind of just get to know them. You watch them a lot. I've seen, uh, I'll always start at season two of, uh, of of Arrested Development for some reason. I, I do love series one, um, mm. but I never go back there for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, start at season two. I think it's because I start at season two thinking, I'll just watch an episode and then it just... It just kind of snowballs from there and I end up watching the whole thing. So I've seen season four twice more since it came out. And the third time I saw it, I kind of thought, right, this really doesn't work. Mm. But the bits that the bits that do really do work. And then when I watched it the last time, I have now downgraded that opinion to this is a fucking state. Mm-hmm. And there are some good bits in it, but overall I actually think this is a disaster. I mean, I, I'm still very much in the 
thinking that it works but whenever you kind of talk about the stuff that doesn't work like the fact that they out and out make tobias gay mm-hmm. as opposed to his obliviousness about the fact that he's gay being a huge driving force behind the show in the first three seasons it's like when you remove that then you weirdly by freeing the character of the kind of this conceit uh you hem him in mm, yeah and I think if I think if I try and run through my head in my head the different strands that that show is trying to pull together mm-hmm. for a show that manages to juggle many different strands and uh kind of balls in the air at any one time so expertly that it can't quite manage you know a, a musical about the fantastic four mm-hmm. uh, like a mexican <laughs> sweat lodge Tony, uh, sorry, John Slattery as a kind of like uh, anaesthetist mm-hmm. who numbs lizards. <laughs> and I, I, to this day, I can't think of what the show would lose if you got rid of that character. Mm. There's the ostrich. Uh, Lindsay goes to India, maybe goes to India. Job and Tony wonder sleep together? Does that oh, happen? Yeah. yeah, they do, wearing they- mask- masks <laughs> of themselves. Yeah. Ron Howard's in it. A lot, mm. and so is his daughter, who's played by Ella Fisher, who yeah. plays bagpipes in Abandoned Dates Michael. Oh, God, there's a whole bunch of... I can't even think what else. other people's storylines are. Oh, George Michael invents Facebook. Yeah. Um, these are all things that, like, they're, you know, they're about... There's about an hour of storyline dedicated to each one of those threads, mm. wherein, you know, they would probably breeze through some of that in one episode of Arrested Development when it was at its kind of creative peak and it would, you know, spark and fire and and all these kind of uh, possibilities would kind of snowball into into one great gag that would then again pick up in the next show. But in that, it's just a, such, a, such a trudge through all of this, you know, uh, you know, kind of set-up joke. It's basically just like 10 episodes of setup just trudging through all this kind of painful setup that never goes anywhere um and kind of it, it's just i it just doesn't feel like arrested development at all when i watch it it just doesn't it just doesn't have that zip and and kind of freshness to it it just feels like a yeah a, a kind of poorly conceived idea that's executed in the way they best possibly could cuz they couldn't get everyone together at one time mm-hmm. Rather than saying, let's not do this, let's come up with something better, they just did it anyway. And yeah, I, my my uh, my kind of feelings about the, the fourth season are considerably uh, on the wane. It's, it's very interesting as well, because like when it came out, there was something very interesting and daring about the way in which they tried to kind of retrofit the show to its new format or its new distribution method. Mm-hmm. Like it's it, it the, in the same way that the original first three seasons were kind of designed for the DVD age. That one is, is designed for the idea of binge watching people watching all of it in a row. Cause that show, I, I can't imagine that show working on a week to week basis because mm-hmm. of all the things that you said. Um, but, it's, but then it's interesting that whenever people talk about the fifth season, which is supposedly coming uh, at some point, 
they are they have essentially said yeah we're going to try and make sure that we get everyone together so that we can have all the cast in the same room as often as possible so uh, so at some point you know everyone involved has admitted yeah this didn't really work (laughs) um or this isn't something that we think we should uh, continue with because it's just not the most satisfying way of making a television show Mm. and it's weird as well that i forget every time that the season three when the final episode when they were essentially resigned to the fact that no one was watching and the show was being cancelled, that they could do episodes like, you know, Save Our Bluths and, mm. you know, they could be very flippant with the form. So much to the to the uh to the degree that the very, very last scene in the entire series up of season three is um maybe and Jeff Garlin pitching the Bluth story to actual Ron Howard, mm-hmm. who says, "I don't see this as a as a uh, series, maybe a movie," and you're like, "Well, okay, you've, you've taken the narrator of the show outside of, you know, you, you put him into the show. This is all now very meta." And then in season four, they make him a character in the show, and I was just like, "Uh." My head hurts now. Like <laughs> it's 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 taking a joke that is, and because they obviously make lots of jokes about, you know, when when you know when Andy Griffith was talked about on the show, and the fact that Ron Howard was in that show, mm. and like they skirt around it the same way they skirt around Tobias's sexuality, and then in season four, you know, let's stop just making the joke. Let's just put the joke in the joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it just it just collapses under its own weight and it just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh and and also in, in terms of shows that are deeply flawed which are returning, uh, I've been rewatching a lot of Twin Peaks lately. Mm. Yeah, like yeah. I I haven't been rewatching a lot of it because there's only thirty episodes, but I've been rewatching it kind of periodically and um it's it's interesting because um back when twin peaks was released on dvd in the early 2000s you could only get season one for a very very long time um for reasons that i I don't quite know maybe they just didn't think there was enough interest to put out the second season um but uh so i had the first season on dvd for years before they put out the the gold box which had both seasons in so i've rewatched the first season of twin peaks probably about 20 times (laughs) Mm-hmm. because it was the only one that was there and I loved it and it's one of my favorite shows and I think it's that that eight episodes some of the most perfect strange and ambitious tv that's ever been made and it's kind of incredible to think that it was ever aired on television because <laughs> it's just such a strange and out there show uh, and I've now rewatched it for like 21 times because I've, I've watched all of those over the course of about two days and now I'm into season two which I've only seen once because as great as the first season is and as good as parts of season two are, uh, I would say that probably about two thirds of that show is pretty much unwatchable uh, after they resolve the central mystery. It just becomes 15, 14, 15 episodes of just terrible wheel spinning until the finale, which is, is like really, really great. But yeah, that, that for me is another great example of a show that I would have no problem saying was one of the greatest of all time that i love that i would kind of put in my own personal top 10 without hesitation but also if someone asked me like to if i was to kind of like talk about the show in depth i would literally just say but yeah after like episode eight or nine of season two uh, i would probably stop watching if i weren't uh you know kind of a, the ter- a terrible completist who feels like they have to sit down and watch the whole thing 
Mm. And it's it was talking about kind of implicit and explicit. That's another um, example of how making something explicit kind of ruined it because it was never Lynch and Frost's intention mm. to solve the murder, but uh, pressure from the the networks um, to kind of resolve the who done it um, aspect of the show led them to doing so. And then as soon as they did so, the the show just became. Uh, a kind of like a weirdly creepy soap opera um, yeah. without the murder element to it, which was never really, I mean, it was kind of compelling, I guess, the like, who killed Laura Palmer. And it was the central question that burned through. Um, but ultimately, that's, I don't think that's why people were watching, was it? It's a great opening setup, you know, mm-hmm. of, of Jack Nance discovering the body and uh, that's being the the thread that introduces all of this disparate group of characters and then slowly unpeeling the onion of this sleepy town that's also a hive for supernatural and criminal activity. But yeah, the the actual mystery is really just there as an excuse to bring Dale Cooper to the town and to, for things to start unraveling. And But once you resolve that, then you are put into this situation of like, well, why is why is Cooper staying in the town? Uh, what else is there for him to do? It's like, oh, there's going to be another crime, and it starts to become a lot more strained, and it loses that effortlessness. And and also, it didn't help that it was around about that time that David Lynch left in order to go and make Wild at Heart, and I think Mark Frost was also distracted by another project. So it then fell to the other writers on the show who were left with this hugely popular show but no real sense of what they were doing so you end up with like multiple episode arcs devoted to james hurley going around on his motorcycle and falling in love with a married woman Mm. which uh, like you say it it becomes the kind of soap opera that the first season and the, the the first half of the second season were distinctly kind of mocking so much mm. so that they had a fake soap opera within the show, making fun of their own melodramatic tendencies, mm. uh, and and at a certain point it just becomes melodramatic a melodramatic soap opera that occasionally dips its toe into kind of existential uh, horror and nightmare nightmarish imagery. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a good example of that one, uh, Twin Peaks, um, and it's tough, isn't it, when especially when you're dealing with something like TV, where there's so many hours to fill. Yeah. It is very hard to be on the button every time. But I'd like to talk a little bit about something like, if you talk about imperfect art that people love, mm-hmm. um, a great thing to like, use as an example is uh, trilogies or series of films Yeah, that so often they're not. We've, we've talked about this. We had a whole episode about trilogies that there's so often the case that the third part doesn't stick the landing. Hmm. And it, I find it very strange. Uh, with one example that I'm particularly going to use in a second, how the the duffer is kind of written out of history to kind of preserve the integrity of the first two installments, and I'm specifically referring to the Godfather mm-hmm. because um, there was a timeout. They used to do like a, a yearly, or I think it was every other year they used to do a poll of like the critics' best films, it might be every five years, actually, the critics' best films and the the uh, the audience's best films, and you vote for them. And they would always, always, always have The Godfather in at, like, one, two, or three. 
every time mm. in the critics poll, but they would always include Godfather 1 and 2 as one choice. And I was like, well, I mean, they can't have just added all the votes up for Godfather 2 and 1, and they just all of a sudden came out in 2 or 3 in the in the top 10. So when people have said The Godfather, they have included 2, because it's obviously better than Godfather 1, but it doesn't exist without it. But they have actually ignored 3 as if it didn't happen. Like yeah. it was, it was the kind of bastard stepchild that they don't like to talk about, and then I, that got me thinking. Well, does Godfather Three actually ruin the Godfather trilogy? Does it make it bad? Is that like reading a book that's awesome, but the last ten chapters are fucking bobbins? I, I would say that it doesn't because it's so far removed from the first two in plot and time. Mm-hmm. I think if godfather 3 if godfather 2 had been godfather 3 if that makes sense if the second one had been really bad yeah and it was but it still had essentially the same plot and it had all of the prequel stuff and the flashbacks and uh and it kind of like continued the story immediately more or less immediately after the first one that would have a greater chance of ruining it because Mm -hmm. you would be filling in the history and just kind of giving all of this backstory that people would fight and it would just kind of taint the whole thing but because those first two films are interconnected both plot wise and time wise they can exist as their own separate thing much more so than the godfather part three which came out like 16 years later and was and is so separated in in that regard Mm. and it's you know, the same argument that could be applied to uh, those Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. The, you know, they are considerably more bad than good. I mean, we're now seven films into a franchise of which uh, three of them are terrible. Uh, two of them are amazing. One of them's pretty good and one's very patchy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, you know, you, you take the step back and is... You know, what are people clinging on to? Is it just the excitement of those first two films? And do the peaks kind of like uh, cast too big a shadow over the troughs for you to see them? I think so. And also I think it's uh, with anything like that, particularly I think with anything in the fantasy or sci-fi genre, uh, you just enjoy the world so much. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a fascinating universe to visit, the Star Wars universe, which is why it's endured and why it's spawned all of these different, uh, you know, ancillary works, most of which are non-canonical now, but you know, that for, for many, many years, they had all of these uh, separate works that kind of spun off from it. And people bought them in droves because they wanted to get a, a taste of star Wars and to see a different element of the world. So even though the prequels aren't, uh, aren't my thing, <laughs> let's say I don't particularly care for them. Uh, even even so, like it's still it was still always fun, you know, seeing the hearing the fanfare, seeing the words come up across the screen, and then getting to see a new corner of the universe that that George Lucas had created. Uh, and I feel like that is the thing that keeps bringing people back, even when the films themselves weren't good, or even like in the case of of the Force Awakens, where people have misgivings about you know it's it's nostalgic elements and the fact that it it kind of repurposes a lot of already existing elements uh it still has that ring of familiarity and that's what people like about it Mm. i would just like to just like to say that non-canonical is a great star wars name if anyone (laughs) if anyone wants it you know it's yours 
Yeah, that'd be a great in-joke to have as a character named that in episode eight. So, I mean, there's still time, Ryan Johnson. You've still got you've still got a year. Mm, you can ADR that over. Yeah. Some, someone who's already got a name. Uh, but I do. I also feel like even outside of 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 um, fantasy, I think that's also one of the key things about about TV is that because you spend so much time with these characters and in and, and like good TV shows. Uh, create kind of like a little hermetically sealed world with recurring characters and recurring idea, returning ideas, and, and the idea of like getting to go back to Springfield or to Pawnee or whatever means that that's kind of a big part of the appeal. Is you are you feel as if you are returning to this little alternate reality that uh, is populated by characters you like, even if they maybe aren't doing things you're particularly interested in at, at a certain point. Mm, mm. thought about some other reasons that something we can love something that is uh imperfect if you stand back and view objectively um and i kind of came up with like a very small uh sample size um of 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 kind of examples of films that are slightly tarred by uh, a bad ending Mm-hmm. Or an unnecessary coda, I like to call it. Yeah. Um, with the two examples I can think of being Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, yeah, um, yeah. which has one of the greatest final shots of any film ever. Um, but that is preceded, and that's how everyone remembers the end. No one remembers uh, like a three-minute scene where a room full of characters we've never met before a explain the plot, and b have to explain. What transvestitism it transvestitism is mm-hmm. transvest transvest can you say it please Ed transvesticism exactly they have to explain what that is I mean I can't say it but I know <laughs> what it is and obviously this was made for a, a kind of a different audience the nineteen sixties audience but the film's pretty out there sexually anyway mm-hmm. um, and that scene just feels like like you 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 almost forget that it is actually in the film yeah. Um, and for me, when I watch it, it it just kind of like you've got this perfect pulpy, um, uh, kind of movie which has got pretty much everything. It's got you know kind of cool characters who are kind of driven into this 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 kind of pulp mystery plot that is completely t boned at the halfway stage and turns mm. into something completely different and becomes something way weirder and way creepier. And it does all this great work in setting all this up and then just kind of lumps that on in the end. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's not cool. But, like, do people just forget about it? Do people just gloss over it? It's definitely one, whenever I rewatch it, and I, and I rewatch Psycho every couple of years, because even though it's not my favorite Hitchcock. I think that's probably rear window. That's the one I, I tend to enjoy kind of the most, but it's, it's the one I find the most watchable. Mm-hmm. And also it's the one of the more visually striking, uh, which is interesting considering that he shot it on the cheap with his TV production crew, uh, mm-hmm. that it still looks kind of really fantastic and, and seems that like it, cause I think his idea was he wanted to try and make a disreputable black and white movie that was really good. And he did but it's also not a film that's that, that doesn't feel that disreputable. It looks very classy. So he kind of was too, he was too talented for his own good in some regards was Hitchcock. But um, mm. like whenever I, I rewatch it, that is the one scene that you get to and you're like, Oh yeah, this bit with like a psychiatrist, like you say, just doing a kind of a basil exposition, y kind of explanation for everything that's happened, which from our jaded modern perspective, you don't really need, 
but even like for 60s audiences it kind of feels like uh that you're you're talking down to them in a way that uh if the rest of the film wasn't so amazing you would find deeply offensive and uh um uh what was the term uh condescending mm. yeah absolutely which is you know if if you take that scene in isolation that is not a scene that you would feel like belongs in a in a film that is widely regarded as one of the the kind of the greatest exponents of the form yeah and it you just remind me also of probably one of the all-time great imperfect films because it literally can't be it can't be completed it's an incomplete film that will never ever be completed is the uh, magnificent ambersons mm. the awesome wells film which a like an hour of it is missing <laughs> like the, the the version that exists now is 90 something minutes long and wells shot a lot more of which was just completely destroyed uh so obviously there's that but also it has a tacked on happy ending which couldn't be more obviously tacked on if it tried mm. like it looks different it also is totally different from the last of wells's material which is the the main character in a pit of despair in the, in like a room on their own and then suddenly it cuts to two characters on their own kind of talking about how that character has had some sort of accident and is now in a hospital and then you don't see him again because it's just those two talking about the fact they were in a, they were in a, some sort of accident uh, and it's really weird and it's really jarring and it doesn't really make a huge amount of sense considering the film that went beforehand but the rest of the film is just so kind of gorgeous and beautiful and, and wonderfully well played that you almost mentally just kind of check out once you have that scene of like the character in a, uh, in a hotel room. Mm. Cause you can just be kind of like, ah, you know, this is where the film really ends because everything after this is Robert Wise just trying to make the best of, of what the studio are telling him to do. Hmm. And the other one of the other examples I thought about, it's not a bad ending. It's more just like a bit of a pat ending, mm-hmm. which is uh, the film Wonder Boys, which yeah. you know we really like. And sure. you know you spend all this time with this this wonderful character called Grady Trip, who is, yeah, the man's a shambles. Let's not uh, you know beat around the bush. But you know he he learns about himself as the film goes on, as as you know films and stories teach us that you know you can't just carry on being a certain way there's an equilibrium that is disrupted and then restored into a new different equilibrium um but in that film we're kind of uh kind of shown this character who he's you know he's in a bad place he's self-medicating he is wearing his wife's dressing gown there's a story behind it it's not very interesting um but like at the end essentially the lesson seems to be if you have a shave and stop smoking weed, that will sort your life out <laughs> <laughs> and get a laptop more than a typewriter. Like it didn't have to be that kind of conveniently packaged and rounded out. And it always feels to me like, you know, you, you smooth the edges. You don't just, you know, you know, take his dressing gown away and, you know, make him wear a roll neck and all of a sudden he's a different character, mm. which always seemed like it, it always seemed like a bit of a cop out to me. Yeah, or a, a, a also a different Curtis Hanson film, the end of LA Confidential. Mm. Even though the ending is exactly how it happens in the book, more or less, which is that there's a shootout and the characters survive and they're kind of like hanging out afterwards. It still seems like weirdly out of place that after this kind of 
grueling fight in which these characters barely survived. They're just kind of sat there and they're just like chumming around even. And it seemed like considering the kind of hellish version of LA that the film has inhabited up to that point, it, it does almost feel, it, it gets into that um, thing that the basis for like every terrible fan theory which is that if the ending for film feels like really really out of place, it must be a dream in the like the dying moments of the character's life. Mm. Uh, the, the, taxi, the taxi driver scenario. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't mar the film. It doesn't ruin the film in any way. But it is one of those things where you look at it and you think this feels like they're hewing a little too close to kind of the Hollywood model for their own good. Even if at the same time they are also kind of being a little smart about it in having uh, it explained that the the villain of the movie who had been killed in said shootout was falsely claimed to be a hero because that was the kind of the easiest story to tell mm. yeah yeah and can you think of any more like, kind of with 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 uh endings or scenes that have thrown it off um before we move on to my next category which is called unsavory elements okay um yeah, I mean, it's not a movie that I love, but it's a movie that I liked an awful lot, except for the ending, is Scream 4. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen Scream 4. but for, I, don't think I, I don't think I have. Uh, for 80 minutes, it's a very solid Scream movie. It's very funny. It's self-reflexive. There's uh, a lot of kind of solid jokes. It's got a very good cast of younger actresses and actors who end up getting killed in inventive ways. So it, it does, it, it kind of, it fits the bill. And then the penultimate scene in the movie reveals who the killer is reveals their motivations and it's a very clever revelation the reasons for it are good and the killer themselves kind of gives this wonderfully unhinged performance that is that has a a pitch and a level of intensity that i was not expecting from the fourth movie in the film in the scream franchise especially one that was like 13 12 13 years later than the previous ones or whatever it was uh, and I was, I, when that ha- I saw that, I thought, oh, wow, this is like super impressive and interesting. And then immediately after that, there's like a scene in which order is restored. The kind of the, the good guys win. And it's just a really boring, seemingly kind of focus group uh, mandated ending. Uh, and it's the sort of thing where you think, I bet the original version of this script ended <laughs> like the scene before, because that feels like such a more bracing and uh genuinely kind of uh honest ending considering the movie that had come before mm, yeah god damn those focus groups ruining everything mm. trying to make things palatable some things that aren't palatable which is something i've been thinking about is you know films that are great or are well loved that perhaps have got some ideas in them that might seem dated mm-hmm. or you know somewhat out of step with modern thinking you could call them problematic. Other people might say racist or misogynist or, you know, they have uh, fairly kind of like unsavory undertones. Yeah. Um, a lot of kind of classic era Hollywood has this. Um, there's a great bit in the Spike Lee film Bamboozled where there's a montage of all of the horrendously racist things that are in some of, you know, Hollywood's greatest films. Uh, and films and also you know things being perpetrated by hollywood's greatest stars you, that you don't see anymore like you know fred and ginger blacking up is something that you don't want to see yeah um and it kind of 
kind of takes a shine off, shine off a few things. Um, but like, is there any examples you can think of where something great or that you still love that is, you know, has some deeply problematic elements? Uh, yeah. I mean, I just recently watched the documentary De Palma about mm-hmm. Brian De Palma's work. And um, there's a lot of his films that I really, really love, but it's hard not to feel that there are hints of misogyny to his work. Mm-hmm. Like, not, not. I don't necessarily think that he is deliberately being hateful towards women or that he is kind of working through some issues by having them being brutally murdered on screen. But that doesn't change the fact that a lot of his movies do have women being kind of brutally killed on screen and do have kind of retrograde attitudes towards sex just because of the times when he was making like a movie like Sisters or Dress to Kill or Body Double or things like that. Doesn't mean that the movies aren't kind of great thrillers and they aren't hugely enjoyable, but there are kind of moments when you watch it and you're just kind of like, yeah, I feel feel very uh, conflicted about how much I'm enjoying this movie. And, and, but at the same time, you know, it's hard to tell if that's, if that's his intention. I think in some cases it probably is, but like, yeah, sometimes you, you can't tell if it's intentional that he's trying to make you feel uncomfortable and what part of it is just that there's some weird part of his psyche that's starting to poke through. Mm. I suppose we've covered this in, in separating art and artist, haven't we? With like talking about Woody Allen's stuff. Yeah. Um and you know Roman Plansky's films there's 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 a certain element of feeling uncomfortable about those but I suppose they're less about the actual film itself and that's more the baggage we kind of bring to it I guess. Yeah. Um but can you think of uh, any films or examples of films where a scene or this just an element of the film is is perhaps off that perhaps takes the shine off it like you know the the special effects are pretty crummy. Or, you know, there's a really duff performance in it. Um, I always keep thinking of in the period in the in the kind of the late 90s, early 2000s, where David Mamet was, was kind of people giving him money to make films, which was mm-hmm. nice. And he was directing a lot of films that are all okay. And one of the reasons that they're all okay is that he casts his wife in all of them. Yeah. And she's not a particularly good actress, unfortunately. Rebecca and Pigeon, is it? Rebecca Pigeon, yeah. yeah. And in a lot of the films, it's quite a... A kind of distracting presence, I guess, because mm-hmm. the the whole thing seems to be dragged down um, uh, by kind of like a duff performance. Um, can you think of any examples, things like that? Yeah, I I just uh, thinking about a movie from two thousand eight that I love, and that is a kind of a great a great movie is uh, Let the Right One In, mm. which is a terrific movie, a great. Um, I kind of don't feel like a horror movie. It's more of a great coming-of-age movie that happens to feature vampires, mm-hmm. which I think is why it got a little bit of pushback from people who say it's one of the best horror movies of, of the, the kind of last 20 years. Um, but there's one scene in it in which a character who has been bitten by a vampire is attacked by a bunch of cats. Mm-hmm. And the cats are CGI and they look dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like a really noticeably bad special effect in a movie that otherwise is very light on special effects and the ones that are used look very good. Mm. And it's just, it's just one of those things that when you watch it for the first time, you just kind of like, that, that this scene could have been taken out or, you know, they could have uh, had fewer cats and, you know, use the extra money to make them look better. Yeah. that That's the, I think this, 
like this slight conversation, a small, small conversation about let the right one in is going to prove the point about the entire episode that we're, we're recording in that, like, I really like that film mm-hmm. and I can't remember this scene that you're talking about. <laughs> so I clearly have blanked it out because the rest of the film is so good. Yeah. I, can't rem- I can't remember the scene where a character is, is, is killed, by, killed by a gang of cats. Um, I kind of thought about this in a way uh, whilst watching Stranger Things mm-hmm. um, because I really enjoyed that show. Um, and I felt like they did a lot of interesting things, but one of the things that they didn't do, uh, which I felt like they could have done, is do something practical with a monster. Yeah. So by the end, they had this this CGI monster, but they had, it was almost like they were kind of almost trying to make it deliberately look kind of bad. And it looked kind of like X-Files CGI bad. Mm-hmm. Um and they kind of tried to shoot around it and and use some kind of creative lighting to to minimize the uh, the damage, I suppose. But I was like, is this a is this are they doing kind of bad CGI to perhaps evoke some of the bad practical effects you'd have seen in the eighties? Because if they are, then I don't get it. And if they're not, then they've kind of just taken the edge off this whole series, which would be really fun to watch by having you know. Let's you know. Let's just see the monster, and yeah, it's not very good. And the monster itself is also the design of it is so in keeping with like every monster in every J.J. Abrams movie. Mm-hmm. It's like it's not particularly inventive, and it doesn't even feel like like for a show that tries so hard to evoke the eighties. It looks so unlike like what monsters in the eighties look like that it, it's distracting. Mm. Yeah, it's a shame that, like, you know, a film can be thrown off by something kind of like that that will trip you up. I also feel the same way about, we've talked about it before, the Sydney Lumet film Q&A, which is yeah. really great, but has a really bad score mm. and, more importantly, a really dreadful song in it, which kind of, in an 80s kind of power, rock, kind of rock power ballad, type style spells out the plot and all the decisions all the characters are going through whilst you're watching them do that and it's just such a terrible choice of music that um that's now all i can think about when i think about q a yeah although i do find myself singing that song surprisingly often to myself just because it is horribly catchy um (laughs) the song the song is by ruben blades and it's called i don't know if i think it's just called q a but the 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 line goes don't double cross the ones you love don't double cross the ones you need and it's a dreadful song <laughs> it's really bad and you're right it does not fit that movie at all aesthetically it's just that that style of music and that style of song really fits into kind of the overarching uh, overarching trend in the 80s for songs that kind of describe the plot occurring uh, in the film. Mm, yeah, yeah. Any other examples of imperfect films or art um, and the reasons for their imperfections you can think of? No, uh, nothing that leaps to mind, but one element that I kind of thought was it was interesting is like, to what extent do you feel that the reason why you kind of are drawn to movies they're imperfect or, or TV shows, whatever they're imperfect is because they're just more fun to talk about the ones than ones that are objectively great and kind of flawless. Um, 
I feel like we find ourselves talking about ones that are imperfect because, you know, I don't really feel like there are any perfect ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of degrees of imperfection, I guess. Um, I enjoy talking about The Sopranos, for example. Yeah. But, you know, overall, that's a good show. But I'm well aware that there are a couple of seasons in which it wasn't a great deal of fun to be sat watching. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think... And also that was a show that was uh, suffered a potentially fatal derailment when uh, when Nancy Marchand died, mm. which, you know, she played Tony's mother and she was going to be hugely central to the entire plot line of the third season. And then she died and they had to completely rejig the show. And they ended up making something that was like possibly even better than the limited scope that david chase had when he that was the the blueprint from which he was working but yeah that that's one where because so much of it was them having to try and rejig things on the fly to an extent Mm. that it's not going to have the kind of the crystalline perfection of a show that's planned out kind of years in advance yeah i think to go back to your question i think that it's more fun to talk about them because you find yourself defending the imperfections. Right. I guess. I think like, you know, uh, you always talk to people and you say, well, you know, you know, Star Wars is great, but Return of the Jedi is super fucking wonky. And then someone says, do you know what? I really like Return of the Jedi. And then I don't mind that. Or, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with that bit. And then that's where the kind of fun discussion comes from, I guess. Yeah. That you end up, talking about the stuff that you do like, because everyone knows what is good about something. Um, it's, you know, where you find the joy in the stuff that doesn't quite work. Like, you know, I I really enjoy quite a lot of um, season three of Rest of Development. Some of my favourite episodes of the show in, to- in, 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 in all in all are, uh, are from season three. But if I think about the Wee Britain storyline, mm-hmm. it makes me feel a bit queasy. Yeah. Um, because it's... Not particularly good and not particularly well executed, even though there are some funny gags to be had around it. Um, but like, you know, I'm not saying that I like those episodes of season three to be a kind of Arrested Development hipster and say, you know, don't want to pick the obvious ones, so I'll go for something in season three. That's not the case at all. Um, but it's it's kind of getting into the point where like there's obviously something in there in that kind of mess that kind of did strike a chord and it's mm. fun finding those things and seeing where that, where it kind of, where it's different to other people because ev- everyone agrees on what the good stuff is. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's why the Simpsons remains my favorite show of all time, even though I'd say there's a good 200 episodes of it. I haven't seen <laughs> um because around episode 400 i just kind of drifted away and now i only kind of drift back in when if an episode i haven't seen happens to be on tv or if people say that you know there's an episode that's aired that is is really really good like the most recent um uh episode where they did a a halloween episode that wasn't a treehouse of horror uh which was actually like a really good grounded episode and completely separate from the the kind of the the zaniness that the show had become uh defined by Uh, it's just the fact that not only do I kind of love the first 10 years so much and I've seen them so much, it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, we're saying that uh, we like to have stuff off, stuff on in the background when we're working. Well, when I was at uni, I just basically had the first 
four or five seasons of The Simpsons on in constant rotation, just playing all the time. So there are parts of those that are just deeply ingrained into my psyche at this point. Um, but they were already they were already pretty ingrained by, by the time I got to uni, uh, and um, like just the I, I love those so much, and I just feel such an intense love for what they represent of the show. Uh, that I still try and find the good even in the lesser episodes and the lesser seasons. Uh, and, you know, because the show is still pretty funny most of the time, it's not kind of great, but it still has some good jokes. I feel like there's still enough material in there where you can actually have a, a re- reasonable discussion about its merits. Um, or, or kind of uh, in a kind of a, a different way, something like Lost, which was a show that uh waffled quite a bit and had some episodes that weren't particularly good such as the one where they felt went out of their way to explain how exactly jack got his tattoos uh as opposed to ignoring it and just saying like hey these are the tattoos that the actor has um but and it ended in a very wonky way but it was such a ridiculously entertaining show at its peak that when people denigrate the show i still feel the need to kind of leap in and defend it and say hey but you know that it was the action was good it had a really compelling characters and such and such and such Mm. yeah it's weird that i think about the simpsons and how many 600 episodes you say there are 600 episodes just recently aired yeah i reckon tops i've seen like 100 episodes of the simpsons wow um it's a show that i've really not seen a lot of I mean, obviously, I find it funny. I used I had the first four seasons on DVD, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to watch them all as they come out because I was kind of starting to going to buy them, you know, as they dropped. And I think yeah, I had yeah. those those first four as they came out, and I watched the first one, and then I was like, okay, well, that, you know, I can just ignore that first season because you know they were finding their feet or whatever. Mm-hmm. Season two and three. Oh, they're starting to pick up. Then got season four, and then I was like, okay, I kind of forgot to buy season five. <laughs> and then I sold all my DVDs, and now um, I'm kind of never at home in time from work to see it when it's on Channel 4. I don't have cable, so it's not on all the time. And I kind of saw a few recent episodes, and they just kind of lost me. Hmm. Um, so there's an awful lot of episodes that like people reference, like kind of classic episodes that I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Wow. Um, so maybe that's my thing. Maybe I should just like start caning some Simpsons. Yeah. Well, you get get a cable subscription for when you're traveling around the states next year. Yeah, because I can't. I won't be able to avoid it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I've seen the monorail episode. That's good. Yep, that's a good one. That was just that they're, they're doing their uh, FXX are doing the kind of every Simpsons ep- ever uh, marathon, and that was on the other day. And uh, it was great to be reminded that, the, <laughs> that uh, perfection exists in the world because that is probably a perfect kind of episode of a comedy. Mm. And everything about it just works so well. Uh, and also, as happens every time I watch kind of an episode from those first 10 seasons, I just get really sad that Phil Hartman's not around anymore. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, well, on that note, let's go to recommends. What have you got this week, Ed? I'm going to recommend uh, a movie. I've watched a lot of movies over the last couple of days with it being the the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, And so I decided to watch a movie that isn't doing very well and is probably going to disappear from theatres really, really soon. Uh, It's the movie The Edge of Seventeen, 
starring Haley Steinfeld and co-starring Woody Harrelson uh, and Kira Sedgwick and a couple of younger actors whose names I don't know. Uh, but, but they were all very good. Uh, it's a kind of coming-of-age comedy about a young girl who... Uh, played by Haley Steinfeld, who discovers that her best friend, who's basically been pretty much the only person she cares about for her whole life and who has kind of seen her through being unpopular in school and the death of her father, has started going out with her older brother, who she hates because he's kind of this perfect, hugely popular jock. Uh, and the spiral that her life then goes into as a result of that as she cuts off concept, contact with her best friend kind of has a, a flirtation with someone uh, kind of an awkward young man who's in her uh her class at school whilst also pining after this kind of hip goth kid who she uh, kind of becomes a little bit obsessed with and uh, it's, it kind of follows a couple of weeks in her life as, as all this stuff is kind of roiling on uh, and it's a hugely funny show a funny film it's hugely uh enjoyable but it's also very honest and probably one of the best representations of being an awkward teenager i've ever seen i found a lot to a lot of it kind of rang true from my experiences of being gone in 16 17 uh including uh you know we we talked about movie parties mm. uh in the episode last week there's a great terrible movie party in it or the, the experience of being at a party that's really fun but you're just like super awkward and can't really figure out what to do uh of which i've had multiple experiences in my life so that was uh something that i really responded to uh and it's just uh it's, it's a it's a really really terrific movie and i think it's a terrible shame that it's not doing as well as it deserves to but also that it's you know, a comedy in the teen genre because that means that it won't be seriously considered for like awards. Because I do, I do genuinely think that Haley Steinfeld's performance in it would be worthy of kind of serious awards consideration if it weren't in a kind of an a non prestigious genre. Hmm. Yeah, it'll never be recognised awards wise, will it? The yeah. the teen genre, well, like Juno, I guess, like. Uh... Uh, kind of did some business, didn't it? But yeah, it's a shame when shit like that gets left on the uh, on the scrap heap. Yeah. Um, so if, if anyone, get, if you have a chance to see it in a theatre, do because it's it's really really great and it's the sort of movie that could do with a bit of support. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to uh, pick something inspired by uh, a new album that's out at the moment. Um, people who uh, are interested, I guess, will know that the uh, the group a tribe called Quest have got a new album out. Um, a tribe called Quest, uh, a popular group of rappers. Um, you know, they're from that rap music they have now, mm. um, and uh, they were very popular in the nineties. And the uh, and then they did a quite a bad album in nineteen ninety eight called The Love Movement, which was which we don't like to talk about. But that was the last thing they ever did. And then uh, this year, because obviously it's two thousand sixteen, um, one of their members, Fife Dog, uh, passed away sadly, and um, the band decided to call it quits. But what I didn't know was that they were working on a new album, their first one since the Love Movement in 1998, and that was kind of hugely exciting. And it's actually come out, um, and there's a lot of cool people on it, people like Kendrick Lamar, who's pretty cool, isn't he, Ed, these days? Mm, very um, pe people like Elton John. He's not very so popular. He's very popular. <laughs> he's not so cool, uh, although I think, you know, you've probably got an auntie who thinks so. Um <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyway, they've got no album out and that's kind of exciting. But what it reminded me of is there's a really super good documentary about them 
uh, called Beats, Rhymes and Lifes. Uh, Lifes? Life. Um, which is directed by the uh, character actor Michael Rappaport. Um, and it is a pretty warts and all um, kind of expose, not expose, that sounds, makes it sound kind of tawdry and crass, um, uh, kind of a film about them and their conflicts and what drives them. And uh, But it's also told from the point of view of Michael Rappaport, who is a massive Triumph Called Quest fan. And the love of the music and how good the music is really comes across. Uh, and it's just a really warm uh, kind of documentary, which is not uncritical, but not too critical of the band and, uh, you know, some of their output. Um, that I think with Five Dogs passing and a new album and the kind of the idea that perhaps we should, uh, you know, have a listen and try and feel better about things, um, I think that's a good shout. Uh, and a good kind of companion piece uh, to that record. Have you seen? Have you seen the movie or heard the new record, Ed? I've heard the new record uh, after seeing them perform on Saturday Night Live, which was very emotional because obviously Five Dog isn't there. So when his parts on the songs were played, they had a kind of a backdrop of his of his face fell down, and they just played the record, mm. which I thought was very very sweet kind of tribute to him. Uh, but I still haven't seen the the movie, although I I always keep an eye out for it on streaming services because I remember it playing at the Sheffield Dockfest a few years ago and everyone who saw it raving about it uh, and saying that it was a, a hugely enjoyable watch. Mm, and it is. And uh, for, you know, no other reason than that's why I'm enjoying it. Uh, enjoying it, recommending it. And you'll enjoy it. Jesus Christ, it's late. I need to get, <laughs> I need to get off this... Uh, this uh, this podcast anyway that is your lot everyone on the subject of imperfect art uh thanks as always for listening if you've enjoyed the show please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or player fm and if you really enjoyed the show why not leave us a little review you can find us on twitter at srs underscore podcast and on facebook as well we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me goodbye from me